Thanks, great job. Thank you. Thanks for praying for me. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan, and uh, we are entering into the season of Lent together, which I'll tell you about in a couple of minutes. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. I'll be preaching out of James, a book at the end of the Bible, uh, a letter. Page number is on sermon notes page. So make sure you get one of those. Keep your hand up. One of our ushers will help you out with that. On the back of the sermon notes page this week is a whole lot of content and not a lot of pictures, so don't be dissuaded. Uh, go ahead and try to read that. Uh, some organization about some common um, approach, shared fasting and shared readings that I'm inviting you into as we enter into this season, uh, this season called Lent. Also, let's see, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. If you're new with us, welcome. I hope this is your I hope you have a great morning. I hope you're welcomed well, and I hope you're challenged by what we share and encouraged. There's a What is Emmaus brochure that we put out at Christmas there at the information table by the bookstore and the cafe. would recommend this to you. This will be an answer to some of the most frequently asked questions that we hear. Also, if you're a coffee drinker, you're in luck because we have gifts of roasted coffee beans for first-time guests today in partnership with AIM this organization in Cambodia that's fighting sex trafficking. We'd love to give you a bag of coffee. All right. Here's the question. This is the Pearson question, right? Did you get good grades when you were in school? Did you get good grades? Um, I think my, uh, my worst grade ever that I can remember was in chemistry. Just killed me. Junior year. What was your worst? Ryan, what was your worst grade? What class? You don't have to tell me the grade. What's the, what's the class? Biology, I know, it's just, what do we really need it for? What's that? Geometry, anything math-related, yeah, I tried to escape in college, yes. Dance? That's hilarious. That is, is that you, Julie? That's so funny. I guarantee I wouldn't have tried that. Yeah, I wouldn't have tried that. I would have taken rocks for jocks or some other. Good. <clears throat> uh, so there was this consistent grading system that everybody's familiar with. If you do really well, you get an A. If you do sort of well, you get a B. C is supposedly satisfactory, and then it goes down, right? There's no E. It goes right to F, fail. But do you remember when you were a kid and the grading system was different? Anybody remember a different grading system? I remember it like this. E was for excellent, and then there was G for good, and then there was N for needs improvement. Remember that? And it wasn't just that your math class was being scored or your reading ability was being graded. There were things like um, manages time well. You were getting graded on this kind of thing. Sometimes you would get a needs improvement. Or my favorite one, plays well with others. Remember that? So, I mean, I'm thinking about the poor kid that gets a needs improvement and plays well with others, right? This is a challenge. I don't know if we put a kid on the wrong track at six years old with that. I don't know. Maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's brilliant, and I just don't see the brilliance in it. I'm not sure. Uh, so we began the year, 2020, with a focus on what Jesus did. We did a seven-week series on the practices of Jesus. We're going to continue this highly practical, applicable attempt to this action-oriented approach to this season of Lent, this season of simplicity, this season of fasting, by learning about the Christian's call to care for others, especially the most vulnerable and the poor. Now, uh, a little bit about Lent. For most of us, the season of Lent is much less understood than other more common Christian seasons, at least in the Protestant 
uh, world, seasons like Easter or Advent that leads up to Christmas. Most of us have not observed Lent or have only recently begun observing Lent or And this is a lot of us. We grew up in a historic Christian tradition that did observe Lent, but never really explained it very well. And so it kind of took on your own perception or understanding of it. Maybe wasn't as meaningful as it could have been. So it's likely that we either don't understand Lent or we don't really have a recognition of the value of it. Both of these possibilities are common, and they are made even more common by this simple fact. It's this. Lent doesn't play well with others. It doesn't. It would get a bad grade in that regard. It doesn't get along well with a culture that is focused on consumerism. Uh, Lent doesn't blend well with a culture who prioritizes instant gratification around individual needs and desires. Here's what Lent is, and here's why Lent is important. Just a few minutes here as we start. Lent is a fast that prepares us for a feast. That's what Lent is. It's a fast that prepares us for a feast. What's the feast? The feast is Easter. The feast is the day of the resurrection of Jesus. It's the highest holy day in Christianity. Resurrection resurrection is the linchpin in the Christian faith. Everything rests on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, it should be a day of great celebration and not so much from the outside, from the optics, like in terms of the food and the decorations that we'll have in here and the the lunches with friends and family after church and all of those things, which are good and important. But those are all meant to be an expression of the celebration of the resurrection happening in our hearts. It's all supposed to be a reflection of a deeper, more real reality of the resurrection in our hearts. The joy that comes because of the resurrection, the relief that we experience because of the resurrection, the freedom that we experience because of the resurrection. And here's the truth, friends. It is difficult. In fact, I would say you cannot truly celebrate the the resurrection of Jesus if you have not first grieved his death. We need to feel the need. The real purpose of any season of preparation is the preparation of the heart. Right? Is it? Well, I thought it was about getting the caterer there on time and making sure there were enough chairs and getting the program printed and all of that. That's all all outward stuff. The real purpose, the true purpose, and the most important purpose of any season of preparation is getting your heart ready. Have you ever been at an event or maybe even led an event where everything just went well, people showed up at the right time, the food was great, the music was perfect, everybody was happy with the way it went, everybody's excited, and then as it wraps up, you go, oh, oh my gosh, I, I kind of missed it. I kind of missed it. It all happened, but you hear this all the time at weddings, and you hear it from the parents of the bride. That's who you hear it from. They spend all this time like putting into like, the plans and the production and the, the details and the food. And sadly, it's common. It's very easy to do. They missed the point. They, they missed because they didn't prepare their heart. So they prepared all the outside things for the practical thing, but they didn't prepare their heart for the reality of what they were supposed to experience in that, uh, in that event. 
Part of the preparation is remembering how much you need the thing that is to come. The preparation is about growing in anticipation for the thing that is to come. It's about doing the hard work to get ready in order to fully experience the power of the thing to come. What is the thing to come? It's the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the celebration of the fact that because Jesus overcame sin and death, I actually have a real hope that I can overcome sin and death in my own life, and so do you. This is what's to come. Friends, this is the party, and it's scheduled for April 12th, right? And the next six weeks are a season of preparing for that. This is the wedding. This is the graduation. This is the feast we are getting ready for, and that's why we're preparing our hearts. It's what we're preparing our hearts for. Second question, how do you do this work of preparation? Well, you observe the season of Lent. That's how you do it. It's hard to improve on a thousand-year tradition of the church, in my view. Fast, simplify, reflect on your true needs. Do the things that will expose the things on which you depend for those easy comforts. Fast in ways that will help you recognize how quick you are to go to Instagram instead of to go to prayer, right? How quick you are to go to the ice cream in the freezer instead of have a hard conversation with the person that you're living with in your home. Lent is a season of fasting. It's not supposed to feel good. (laughs) Instantly, we have a cultural problem with that. It's supposed to effectively sober us up for this fundamental reality. We need a Savior. This is the truth that's supposed to be glaringly obvious. It's supposed to prepare us for the celebration of the truth that our Savior has come and has triumphed over sin and the grave, and death no longer has the last word. That is no longer the end of the story. So we definitely don't want to just stumble in here on April 12th, which is Easter morning, with unprepared hearts. We want to come ready to celebrate. We want to be all in. Friends, we should be counting the days like kids getting ready for Christmas as we move through Lent towards Easter, in order that, in order to bring our hearts and souls to this place of true, prepar- or true celebration, even in the midst of our trials and our sufferings, because those things don't stop, but we're preparing to celebrate even in the face of challenges and disappointments, and, and that's why we need to fast. That's why we need to fast. We need to voluntarily, what's fasting? We need to voluntarily submit to a season of abstinence in order to embrace and celebrate the reality of the abundance of God's goodness to us, right? So we fast, we go without good and wholesome things, okay, like food. We go without in order to wake us up to the reality of how abundantly God has provided for us. So that's just a little bit about the purpose and the value of the season of Lent. I hope you'll embrace it. I hope you'll dig in, and we're going to provide some direction. Maybe you've got something specific lined up. You know what you're going to do for the season of Lent by way of preparation, but we're going to invite the church into five one-week fasts, so we will all be fasting, or all who would receive the invitation will be fasting together certain things, which I'll explain more about in a minute. All right, so I encourage you to observe the season of Lent in some way. And I want you to know up front that this will disturb others in class. It will. 
Even though it will feel disruptive to your routine, even though it's not convenient, it will not be easy, it probably won't feel fun, it's going to mess, Lent's going to mess with your TV habit. Lent's going to mess with the late night ice cream habit. Um, yeah, uh-oh. Lent's going to address the, like the uh, impulsive shopping instinct. It's gonna, it should mess with that. It should shape that. All the little comforts that aren't necessarily bad, and might actually be good things, but it, Lent's gonna, because Lent's going to mess with that. And remember, Lent doesn't play well with our culture. So don't be surprised when it feels like, oh my gosh, this is so awkward doing this. It feels so weird. It's kind of supposed to. It's kind of the point. It's kind of supposed to rock you a little bit off of your well, well-nurtured, um, like comfort zone that you have spent your whole life building up around you, and I have too. All right, so we want to focus today on the next and the next week on these um, first few words from James in his letter to the church. Jesus has two disciples named James. This James who writes the book of James is not either of those men. This is Jesus' brother, James, which is fascinating because we only get one glimpse into the life of James in the Gospels, and that is when he goes with his other brothers to his big brother Jesus and tries to get him to come back home because Jesus is going a little too far with his message. So Jesus' brothers try to bring him back, kind of talk him off the edge a little bit. And it doesn't seem, in other words, that James is even following Jesus as the Son of God during the ministry of Jesus. Um, and then there's this short statement in one of the letters from Paul that reveals this dramatic conversion that James has. This beautiful glimpse of not only Jesus' love for James as his brother, but also Jesus' desire and willingness to confirm to his brother the truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Let me just read this to you. Um, but you can look it up later if you want. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul writes. Listen to this. He's talking about the resurrection. He says, I receive what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for your sins, according to the scriptures. Paul is saying, this has been my message to you. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, many of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, Paul says. So, this little few-sentence glimpse into this reality that Jesus appears to his brother James, and then within a few years of Jesus appearing to James, James is leading the church in Jerusalem. He holds a place of high authority in the early church as Christianity expands. And then late in James's life, he writes this letter to the whole church. It's just titled with his name, and early in the first chapter, James writes this. Verse 27. Religion... That, can you put it up there for me? Religion, thank you, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, and the next week we'll cover, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. We'll just take the first half today. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after, we'll focus on that verb, 
orphans and widows in their distress, in their trouble, in their affliction, in their tribulation. Those are all ways that's translated. So James is acknowledging, check this out. James is acknowledging this really interesting thing, that not all religion is good. Isn't that interesting? Not all religious practices are even acceptable to God. But religion itself is not the problem. No, we often think of religion as a bad thing. Religion in the evangelical movement has been pitted against relationship, which is sort of a false distinction. But we think about religion as stuffy, as legalistic, as institutionalized, all about power. But James is saying there is such a thing as religion that is pure and faultless. I think we should let that sink in. There is such a thing as religion that is pure and faultless. According to our culture, religion is to blame for all sorts of problems, and I think there's several cases we could point to in which our, our culture is right. But according to the Bible, there is a kind of religion that is pure and faultless. Jesus, his brother James, defines religion that God accepts as the set of beliefs and values that results in something very practical. What is that? Looking after orphans and widows in their time of trouble. Or put another way, visiting orphans and widows when they're in affliction. All right, another question. Why orphans and widows? Well, in James's day, and in many cases still today, orphans and widows were among the most vulnerable. Right? Think about what is being communicated by the labels orphan and widow. I mean, when we use words like this, we are defining somebody according to what they once had but no longer have. And in cultures where family, especially parents or husbands, are the primary source of security, a label like orphan signals what a person needs. In other words, an orphan is a person who once had parents, lost parents, and now they find themselves in a position where they need people to care for them like parents again. So James uses the phrase orphans and widows, not exclusively in the sense that they're not the only people the church is supposed to care for, but as clear examples of those who are the most vulnerable because of what they once had, and now they don't have anymore, and so now their needs are clear in that regard. And there are many other examples of people who are clearly vulnerable in our culture. And it's interesting to me that we refer to them by what they don't have. They are the homeless, right? They are the jobless, the unemployed. Right? They are the undocumented. They once had a state, and now they don't have a state. They are the malnourished. These are some of the most vulnerable in our culture. And what James is saying in his letter to the early Christians is that the purity of the Christian's religion, to a certain degree, the legitimacy of their religion is determined by how they treat the most vulnerable among them. <laughs> in other words, to put it in the negative, my religion, by that I mean my theological convictions and my spiritual practices, they, my religion is faulty, my religion is corrupt, my religion is wrong if it fails to move me to care for others or if, on the other side, it actually leads me to harm others or to ignore the most vulnerable. You could justifiably say about me, if that were my case, your religion is your problem. You could fault my religion. 
Religion gets blamed for all sorts of problems today, and people do all sorts of things in the name of their religion. I think many of these things miss the point. Some of these things are objectively destructive, and so religion gets a bad rap, and it gets a bad rap deservedly so in many cases. But isn't it interesting that you don't hear a lot of valid criticism about genuine efforts to care for the most vulnerable? doesn't matter who's doing it. Pretty challenging to criticize somebody who is genuinely and consistently caring for the vulnerable. People are going to politicize everything. They will politicize even helping people. But those who over time demonstrate a consistent commitment to simply caring for those who need help will usually be respected for their work. Here's an example. 26 years ago, February 1994, President Bill Clinton invited Mother Teresa of Calcutta to be the guest speaker, the keynote speaker at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. Teresa's biographer, Catherine Spink, says that she agreed, but only reluctantly. At five feet tall, you could barely see her face over the lectern when she addressed the 3,000 people who were there in attendance. And just minutes into her speech, she focused on like a laser on what she called the greatest destroyer of peace today. She said it was abortion. She said, because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of an innocent child, any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people how to love, but only to use violence to get what they want. So this tiny 83-year-old nun continues to plead with her American audience for more than a half an hour. And she says at one point, I will tell you something beautiful. We are fighting abortion with adoption. We care for the mother and we adopt her baby. We have saved in this way thousands of lives, she said. So her speech was direct and it was unflinching. She quotes Jesus almost every other sentence. She received a standing ovation by those in attendance, except for a few notable exceptions, like the president and his wife and the vice president and his, and his wife who were sitting right next to her. So you can't miss it in the, in the C-SPAN uh, recording. The most powerful moment is when Teresa lifts her eyes from her notes and looks at the crowd and says, if you do not want your children, give them to me. I will take care of your children. She said, we have thousands of couples who are longing to love and to be loved by children. (laughs) Okay, so the Washington Examiner described Teresa's speech as the clearest modern example of a prophet speaking to Caesar. The article wondered how the giver of such a controversial and confrontational message could not only escape fierce criticism, but then be embraced by those she had directly confronted behind the curtain right after the speech. And the answer in so many words that was reflected in several stories published in the days following that event was this. You can disagree with her as much as you want. You can criticize her politics. You can disagree with her theology. But it's really difficult to criticize the person who is literally giving her life to care for the most vulnerable people in the world. Astonishingly to me, there were stories trying to crack down on Mother Teresa's character. And they they just sound ridiculous when you read them. Um... They're reaching for stuff. You know, it's, it's challenging. You can disagree with so much 
around her, but it's really challenging to have any kind of weight of, of validity in a criticism of what she's doing, of what her religion is, is pushing her to do, is calling her to do, is, is prompting and leading her to do. Because she's living out her religion in a way that is so universally compelling by caring for the most vulnerable. Almost anybody recognizes the validity of that. So friends, I tell you that story because I think it's a good example of religion that God accepts as pure and faultless according to James's definition of such. But I also tell you the story because I think it's interesting. It's an example of the kind of religion that most people have a hard time finding fault in as well. One more thought. So is James calling us to be all Mother Teresa's? Is that what he's doing? If so, that's a pretty overwhelming standard. But let's look again at James 1.27. This is what he writes. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So the verb, whatever that verb is there, that's what it all hangs on, right? This is not minor league stuff. This is accepts as pure and faultless by God. I need to know what that verb means, to look after. Sometimes it's translated to visit. I, I looked into it this week, and I love this part of what I get to do. I just dove deep into the original languages, and I'm thinking, okay, there's gotta, this has got to be one of those examples of where a powerful Greek word is just neutered by the English language, just totally like ripped of its significance. I thought I would get in there and find that it actually means you welcome the orphan and widow into your home as one of your own, or you dedicate your whole life to eradicating um, the reality of, of the lack of parents for children or something like that. But I was really surprised that's not what it means. It means visit. That's what it means. That's what it means. That's what, that's what James wrote. To look on is the, is, the, is the literal translation. To check in. And it's, the verb tense is continual. So we might say it's to continually check in on. Would you check in on so-and-so? Would you, would you do that again the next week? It's to, the best translation in our culture is to visit. Which initially feels so thin to me. Does it not feel a little bit thin to you? Visit? Yeah. So I asked my wife what she thought about that. I said, aren't you surprised, Carmen, that James calls the church to visit orphans and visit widows? And, and she said right away, she said, oh, I think visiting is perfect. So we had a really good conversation about it. And like often happens at the end of the conversation, I said, you're right. You're right. Yeah. That's the way it is. I think James is right. I think James is right. And I'm seeing increasingly this week, I'm seeing more and more wisdom in what he calls the church to do. Here are just a few reasons why visiting the vulnerable is powerful. Visiting someone means I go where they live, doesn't it? It means I go to their house, their hospital bed. I go to their prison cell. I go where they are. On the phone, the difference between a hospital call and a hospital visit is when I call somebody who's in the hospital, I'm saying, who's there? What did the doctor say? How are you feeling? Do you have what you need? But when I visit somebody in the hospital, I don't, I don't say anything. 
I don't have to. Because all those questions are answered simply by my being there. I enter into their world. Visiting someone means I go where they live. A second reason it's so powerful is visiting someone is how I learn their needs. This is the in-person experience, and it's irreplaceable. There's no shortcut to this. During times of deep pain, it is difficult for somebody to know what they need. It's even more difficult for somebody to articulate what they need. But if you visit them, all that pressure is off. You can see it yourself. You can perceive it yourself. You don't have to do what we often resort to doing, which is please tell me if there's some way I can help you, which frankly kind of can load up on the burden of the person who's in pain. How can I help? When you're thinking, I have no idea how anyone can help because I'm in so much pain. This situation is so broken. So it's well-meaning, and I understand where we come from, but it actually isn't very helpful to say, can you tell me how I can help? So the way we get around that awkward situation is we go visit them, and it will become clear, right? There will be practical ways that become more obvious. Visiting a person creates the awareness of the situation, and that awareness leads to action. Third, visiting someone is how I learn how I might help, or how others in my community might help. I was stopped on my day off by somebody who's in an absolute train wreck in their life, and I can't help that person very specifically, but I know the person who can, and he's in our church, and I'm going to connect them, right? Visiting someone is how I learn how I might help. Fourth, visiting someone for several times, a, uh, for several minutes at a time over several weeks or months keeps us connected to the ever-changing dynamics of their pain which is the way it is, right? It's not a one-size-fits-all, easy-fix kind of thing. Solutions adjust and morph because the, the pain journey changes over time. And then finally, and here's where I see the brilliance of James on display. I mean, my goodness, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's, he's, he's on that Mother Teresa saint kind of level. But this is what he says, visit the orphan and widow, and here's why that's so brilliant. Anyone can do this. Anyone can visit the sick. Anyone can visit the grieving. Anyone can visit those who are imprisoned. Anyone can visit the vulnerable. James is calling all Christians to do something that is totally doable. I mean, it's totally doable. Anyone can call and say, can I just stop by for five minutes? Anyone can give a hug. Anyone can listen. Anyone can offer to help. Anyone. You don't have to, you know, have a counseling gift or all kinds of biblical knowledge or any kind. Anyone can basically say, I'm with you and you're not alone. And that is pretty much the only thing that matters when you're in pain. You are not alone. I have come to communicate with you in person that you are not alone. This pure and faultless religion that James is talking about is not for the spiritually elite. It's for everybody. It's for all of us. All right? So there's a lot of criticism of Christians in our culture today. A lot of it is valid. There's a lot of people who say religion is the problem. There's some validity to that. But ultimately, I don't think religion is the problem. And I also don't think that our problem is not that we don't have enough Mother Teresas. 
I think what it boils down to in the real practical day-to-day is that we aren't listening. I think that's the problem. We aren't listening. We're, we're not hearing the cries of the vulnerable around us. We're not listening for the cries of the fatherless. We're not listening for those subtle invitations from the widows among us. We're not hearing the most vulnerable when they share their needs quietly. So here's the invitation. Um, Our Lenten series is called Meet My Needs. There's all kinds of facets around that phrase. Each week during Lent, we're going to teach something related to a real need. And then we'll invite the community to participate in a shared one-week fast that is a way of responding to that need. So we'll invite you into five different one-week fasts. They'll be different. And the invitation this week is to fast sound. It's to fast sound for the next six days, Monday through Saturday. Turn off the radio in the car and just drive to work in silence. Keep the TV off. Don't let the background noise of your life exist anymore, at least for a week. Quiet that down. Why would I do that? To practice listening for the needs of others. That's why, right? To to ease up on this easy tendency, because now our music just goes wherever, and our music is good. But the tendency is to drown out the needs of others with our own personal soundtrack. So the invitation is to embrace silence with the intention of hearing from God and hearing the cries of the most vulnerable around us, those who are defined or labeled or known for what they need. Those who in your life, when you think of them, you know they're going through a tough season. When you think of them, you know they're going through a tough season. Why should you quiet down your life so you think of them more often and so you can receive a sense of direction from God as to how you might address situation. So friends, in this season of Lent, may our religion, may our beliefs and our practices move us to care for the most vulnerable among us. And may our religion be seen by God as pure and faultless. Amen? Amen. God, we need your help with this. So desperately, we pray to be jolted out of what has become a pattern uh, for us so that we can just recognize things with greater clarity in the weeks leading up to Easter. I pray especially for the grace to hear the cries of the needy, the vulnerable, and I pray for courage to respond this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand up with me for a minute?